and welcome to What the Hegma podcast with your host Hegma the Bukhater. In this podcast, I'll be diving deep into questions on geopolitics, culture, and the everyday American dream. I'll be doing so from my unique perspective as a Syrian American immigrant. To help me examine these topics, I'll be inviting experts on the matter to weigh in. Two things brought about the launch of this podcast. First, my parents have recently become U.S. citizens, and second, I have just passed my seventh year living in the United States. I feel, thus far, that my relationship towards my second home is changing. I am no longer an observer, but an active participant in the American experience, an experience that constantly has me asking, what the heck? Zach, nice to meet you. Welcome to Birmingham. Thank you. Could you give us a quick introduction of uh, yourself and what you do and introduce the book? Sure. Uh, my name is Zach Hunt. I born and raised in the South, um, Nashville, Tennessee. It's often called the buckle of the Bible Belt. So I grew up evangelical, uh, pretty conservative evangelical denomination, Church of the Nazarene. Uh, it's based out of Kentucky, or Kentucky. It's based out of Kansas City, um, originally from California by way of Texas and um, good people you know and I I did not have like you know the traumatic uh, upbringing in the church you know evangelical church that a lot of folks experience and you know very grateful you know for that but was heavily influenced by that you know worldview I grew up like I said in the evangelical church went to an evangelical college um, got ordained in an evangelical denomination uh, so I I served uh, in Methodist Church um, for a while, which is usually considered mainstream, and then decided to uh, go back and pursue more graduate studies and ended up at Yale uh, Divinity School, which is uh, not evangelical. And that was intentional. You know, I wanted to get out of my bubble. I was going through, you know, what now is labeled like deconstruction, you know, but, you know, for me, it was a lot of deconstruction is questioning my faith, questioning things that I assumed, you know, had been true. And so, you know, part of my journey, you know, was school and part of it was going and serving other denominations. And, you know, the long story short, um, I still go to the church uh, that I grew up in um, because they're my people, because my family, you know, still goes there because I really like our pastors. But, you know, my journey has led me out of evangelicalism, um, you know, as, as an identifier you know, of who I am um, and what my theology is and, and that sort of thing. So now I write books about the theology I used to have um, yeah. and and uh, raise hell on the internet in the name of Jesus. Tell us more about the book. Unraptured is my first book, and it is part memoir, part tour of the apocalypse. Um, it's the story of my faith unraveling but also coming back together again it's a to use the word again deconstruction of end times theology which is mostly uniquely uh evangelical and it's what i grew up in you know i grew up especially as a teenager i got really into end times theology and was worried that i'd be raptured you know at any moment that i would walk home or get home from school walk in the house and see piles of clothes that used to belong to my parents because they've been raptured and I was left behind. So I got really into that. That was very formative for me. And then I got to college, um, not the crazy liberals at Yale, but the evangelical college and 
showed up with all my theories, you know, the end times and dates for the rapture and candidates for the Antichrist. And when um, I sat down to share that with one of my advisors, uh, my world got rocked, you know. I, I, I sat down and rattled off everything that I knew for 20 minutes without taking a breath. And, you know, he looked at me and said, you know, I, I appreciate the guys that you're reading. He's like, they clearly, you know, have a heart for scripture and the faith, but you know, the problem I see is that they're trying to pinpoint places on a map that doesn't exist. He says, you know, I believe we are living in the end times, but we have been ever since Jesus walked out of the tomb. And I hated that answer. You know, I was ticked off at him. I, you know, was too flabbergasted to respond, but left and ran back to my dorm room and slammed the door and, and was angry for a while. You know, I, I was angry at him, angry at Sunday school teachers, angry at, you know, everybody, because I had kind of felt misled. And, um, you know, so my first, you know, journey down that road was to prove him wrong. But no, you know, this guy who, up until that moment, I had held up, you know, as an academic uh, expert on these sort of things, must have been, you know, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing because he didn't believe, you know, in the rapture. Um, he didn't realize that Hillary Clinton was the Antichrist. And he didn't, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, but it led me, you know, a long journey that I, you know, I'm grateful for and realized that I, you know, really should have done a lot, lot sooner in life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it forced me to ask questions about fundamental things that I not just believe, but like assume to be objectively true that either weren't true for various reasons or were a lot more subjective, um, you know, than, than I thought they would. And so this book is, is the story of my story, you know, of faith. Because I, I think there's a lot of folks like me out there um, that grew up in this sort of conservative evangelicalism and then got out of the bubble and had the world rocked. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a lot of folks that are still in the bubble that maybe have questions yep. um, about their faith, about the end times, about rap, like all these big scary topics. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is in some ways, you know, offer answers you know, to some of the big scary questions. Um, but also take some of those scary questions off the board because I think that they're not what the Christian faith is about. And so ultimately what that book is about is, is trying to offer a healthier, more intellectually honest, more pragmatic understanding of Christianity that's not all about escaping earth from heaven for heaven, but instead trying to bring, you know, heaven to earth. Um, like Jesus said, you know, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not in a, in a, a Christian nationalist sort of way or some sort of like um, colonial conquering kind of way, but living out this call to love, living out these heavenly ideas now instead mm-hmm. of waiting for Jesus to show up and fix everything for us. Yeah. And uh, the reason I went out and, and bought your book immediately when I heard about what it was and what it was trying to achieve um, it, it hit one point that I was trying to examine and study further, and it is deconstructing the rapture and um, trying to understand how the idea of the end times influences not only how evangelical Americans think in their daily lives, but how those evangelical Americans, once their mindset is altered, it eventually influences foreign policy, mm-hmm. it eventually influences the way the direction the direction that our entire country is going on and uh, it leads to consequences that not even those folks who I believe are good people yeah. know about. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think you have to peel back a lot of layers 
and get a lot further deeper than end times theology and rapture stuff because at the bottom of it all is a fear of hell. I mean, that's what drives a lot of evangelicalism and it's certainly what drives rapture theology, uh, end times theology in general. I mean, end times theology is as old as, uh, I would say the Christian faith, but I mean, an idea of like the apocalypse is much older than Christianity. The idea that the world is gonna end mm -hmm. and, and there's gonna be some big calamity you know, transcends religion and, and culture. Um, but with Christianity, you know, Christians have believed that Jesus is going to return uh, since the day after he went back to heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, when you read things in Paul, Paul is a very apocalyptic writer. Mm -hmm. We don't typically think of him that way because we associate the apocalypse with revelation um, and those sort of big, scary, dramatic images. But um, apocalypse is just a revealing of the truth. And so for, for Paul, Paul sees in Jesus really the apocalypse because in Jesus, Jesus is revealing the truth. Mm -hmm. And he also believes that Jesus is coming back like tomorrow, yeah. like not next week, not a hundred years in the future. In his lifetime. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Which is why he says things like, don't get married, um, which is a weird kind of thing, especially from a modern context. But if you put yourself in the shoes of Paul, it makes a lot more sense because if Jesus is going to come back next week, next month or whatever, why would you spend time and money uh, invested in planning a wedding and going and getting mm -hmm. dresses fitted and, and finding a venue and doing all that? It just, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And when you begin to see that, um, or see his writing in that through that lens that something dramatic has, has happened and it's changing, it's coming to fruition soon, his worldview begins to make a lot more sense. Um, but there's still that the underlying fear, whether that's you know of the empire, which is what you see uh, in in Revelation, um, or just any principalities and kingdoms that are you know the prophets are calling on to fall. That that fear of 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 hell permeates Christianity across the board, but it really picks up steam. Um, well, that's not the right way to say it. It doesn't pick up steam because the fear of hell is used throughout the Middle Ages to do all sorts of interesting things um, to people, all sorts of awful things, especially to, to women and to minorities um, throughout time. But this theology in particular doesn't exist without this deep-seated fear of being left behind, you know, with the rapture or spending an eternity in hell being tormented. And so this theology exist to ease that fear. Um, it's not something that's, that's historical. Uh, a lot of assumptions about the rapture in particular is, is that it's this ancient Christian theology, and it's only about 150 years old, mm -hmm. um, 170 years old now. The church has always had these ideas about, I mean, the, the idea that Jesus would return one day is as old as Christianity itself. But the idea that there would be a two-stage process where there would be a rapture where some people would go to heaven first and Jesus would come back was invented by a guy named John Darby yeah. um, in the late 19th century. He's a Scottish preacher. He comes over to the United States right after the Civil War, right after these people have experienced hell on earth. Um, and he comes with this message that things are going to get better and that you don't have to worry about you know going through trials and tribulations like this again mm -hmm. because you're, you're going to be taken away. Um, by God and and whisked off to heaven and then all the bad stuff will happen and you'll be out of here. Jesus will come back and everything will be hunky dory um, from now on. And it's a it's a very seductive message. I think it, it's something that even though I don't agree with it at all, um, it makes a lot of sense to me why it would be so appealing yeah. to folks. I mean, even now, you know, we we don't have a civil war going on in the United States, but obviously Syria, you know, where you're from has been you know torn apart. Or if you go to also parts of Central Africa or 
uh, Ukraine. You know, I mean, hell is on earth now in a lot of ways. And the idea that you could be taken away from that by just believing the right things. It's an attractive idea. It is. It is. Um, from a Christian standpoint, it's, it's, the, it's, it's not just non-biblical because the idea is not anywhere in Scripture. Um, the closest you get is Thess- Second Thessalonians, and, and that is actually talking about this second coming return of Jesus. The problem from a Christian perspective is that the idea of a rapture is, is anti-biblical. Because the story of the people of God, which is what the Bible is, is the story of God walking with the people of God through times of trials and tribulation. You know, Noah is on the ark, but he's still going through the flood. Yeah. You know, the people of Israel are liberated from Egypt, but they're still wandering in the desert. You know, the people have their own home, but they're, they end up being conquered and taken into slavery. You know, Jesus shows up, and, and there's these great, wonderful things in the early church, but they're still on the, the, the heel of Rome. Yeah. And so the idea that God would take the people of God away from these moments when the people of God are needed most in Christian theology makes no sense and is, is antithetical to what Jesus called folks to. So it's it's this weird, odd thing that if you're outside the bubble, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you're you're in the bubble, it's very literally a matter of life or death. So so what do evangelical Christians believe will happen on the day of the rapture? And what will bring about the rapture? That's a great question. Um, you know, the problem with asking you know, any questions about evangelicalism mm. is that whatever you want to say about it, the opposite can also often be true. Yeah. And so there are a lot of evangelicals that are super into the rapture. I mean, look at the Left Behind novels, you know, from 20 years ago. I mean, they sold tens of millions of copies. I might have bought a few of them. I mean, you still have a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> but they, you know, it's, it's very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a huge spectrum of, of belief. And so you've got... You know, on one extreme, you have got folks who are looking for signs of the times in every news article that comes out. Mm-hmm. And so they'll look at something like the war in Ukraine, which is, you know, hundreds of miles away from Israel and has nothing to do with Israel on the surface. But Russia is involved. And in a fundamentalist or what's called dispensationalism, which is just a fancy name for end times theology, yeah. and end times theology circle, Circles. Russia is often portrayed as this character, um, Gog and Magog, that are mentioned in Daniel and Revelation that comes down from the north. Mm-hmm. And so they're seen as this player in the end times. So anytime that Russia comes up in the news, then the folks on this end of the spectrum, the diehard, you know, rapture folks, see this as this sign that maybe it's not directly in the Bible, but that's only because I didn't see it before. Mm-hmm. And so they go back and start rereading passages and finding proof texts that show actually this is part of the divine plan. And so you know, that, those folks see end times theology and signs of the rapture um, in everything, mm-hmm. right? And then you've got kind of your middle of the spectrum group who, you know, believe that the rapture is going to happen, you know, believe that there's this basic plan that's re- laid out in Revelation, they just don't understand it, they just, or they don't, maybe don't understand, they just believe it. Um, there's a big chunk of evangelicals that would go there that just believe that that's what they're supposed to believe and just assume that that's part of Christian orthodoxy. So how does it tie to Israel? And so how it becomes tied to Israel is that both of those camps, you know, whether, I mean, there's the camp, there are some evangelicals, a lot of evangelicals, you know, who don't believe in rapture, but for the ones that do, um, whether they're just passive or, you know, hardcore into it, everything that happens in Israel is pointing towards the return of Jesus. So everything that happens in Israel, um, directly impacts their faith as an individual as they see it. 
because for evangelical end time theology, whatever you want to call it, um, there is this roadmap, you know, that I used to believe in, that there are these signs of the times that have to happen. So something like the state of Israel has to be reestablished. Mm -hmm. um, that's not actually biblical, but you can find a proof text, and, you, and it is this big, you know, historical moment. And when you combine those texts and the, the reality of the moment, it becomes this very intoxicating, oh, maybe this is true sort of thing. And so that becomes a sign of the times. Any sign you have a war or conflict, you know, it's a sign of the times because Jesus talks about um, times of trouble and um, wars and rumors of wars. Um, there's a huge hope by a lot of these folk, by well, all of end times folks, that the temple, mm -hmm. you know, will be rebuilt. And so anything that happens on the Temple Mount um, is instantly, you know, on the lips of end times theology community uh, because that's like the biggest sign. If, if somehow the Dome of the Rock could be taken away and the temple could be rebuilt, then Jesus is going to come back and, and everything's going to be made new. And so the entire, not the entire, but the, the driving force of this highly individualistic escapist version of Christianity is centered around this return of Jesus. Like all of us in Christianity are excited about the return of Jesus, but this group believes that there are these special secret steps that need to be happening and they all happen in Israel. And if they can happen, if they can help these events take place in Israel, then Jesus will come back sooner. And so you end up with all sorts of horrible things that can be ignored and written off and justified in the name of Jesus coming back. Mm -hmm. And so that's the driving force of why evangelicals care so much about Israel isn't that end times theology necessarily cares particularly about the people who live there. They do some. I mean, there's certainly a lot of charitable work, you know, for sure, and, and other things that go on. But ultimately, it's, it's a self-centered thing because I want stuff to go my way in Israel so that I can go to heaven sooner. Yeah. It's funny you say that because uh, for my research, when I heard about you and heard about the, the rapture in general, I went ahead and <laughs> found the two Left Behind movies yes. on YouTube. Did you watch them? Which are actually available on YouTube for free. But you need to put your life on hold and watch those. Did I you see the Nick Cage one? The Nick Cage one was actually phenomenal. <laughs> yes, I, I don't watch that. I'm ashamed to say. It was pretty good. It was yeah. pretty good. Um, but I encourage everyone to watch it. So the, the Kirk Cameron one, yes. it's entirely centered around the Temple Mount. Yeah. It's entirely centered, centered around the idea of we're going to rebuild the mm -hmm. Temple Mount and the, the... Temple of Solomon? The Temple of Solomon. Yeah, so the original Temple Solomon built, and then you've got here it needs built one, but... Yeah. Yeah, no, everything's centered around... Centered around rebuilding that, and then once that's achieved, the United Nations will become the... Yeah figure of antichrist a global government yep. that will lead everyone so it's very complex and it has a lot of uh, nuance to it yeah could you explain that nuance so yeah it happened rapture happened your wife her clothes are left in in uh in the in the car yeah say. where where are you as an evangelical christian and uh what happens in the world that's a great question um I always like to predicate these conversations by saying that the rapture is never going to happen. Yeah. Um, it's not biblical. It's yeah. not Christian orthodoxy. It's invented whole cloth um, uh, about hundred, like I said, about 150 years ago. And so what will happen on the day of rapture is nothing because that day will never come. <laughs> but the belief of yes. what will happen is that in the twinkling of an eye, like a thief in the night, you know, when you least expect it, yeah. 
Um, there will be a trumpet blast that everyone around the world will be able to hear. Mm -hmm. And then people who are faithful Christians and faithful Christians only um, will be whisked away in an instant to heaven, normally leaving their clothes behind so that I guess they arrive naked in heaven, which I, I, I think would be an awkward moment. But <laughs> maybe they get heavenly robes. Um, the theologians don't get too detailed about that. But, but the idea, and this is what you see in the movies, mm -hmm. is that it would create this massive world chaos because you would have all these Christians in all these different positions, um, not just like sitting down having coffee at a restaurant, but Christians flying airplanes and driving cars and uh, manning you know, a nuclear plant or whatever disaster scenario. And so that the idea behind the Left Behind novels, which you know, is, as much as I disagree with the theology now, do a great job of capturing that theology. Mm -hmm. So as, as much as I don't like the theology, it's a really good snapshot of what that world believes will happen, and it's and it's chaos. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that the rapture will happen, and again, there's there's differences of opinions on timing and things like that, mm -hmm. but the big picture is the rapture happens, there's seven years of whatever they call tribulation, where all these different plagues happen and these bowls of wrath are poured out. Um, and then at the end of this, separate, this seven years, um, Jesus will return and Jesus will have, you'll have this big climactic battle with Satan. It'll take place in the Valley of Armageddon, which yes. is just outside of Jerusalem. Um, and then that will be the inauguration of uh, a thousand years of peace. Or maybe Jesus comes back at the end of the thousand years of peace. There's, there's disagreements, like I said, along the timing of these sorts of things. Um, but again, it's, it's all about me getting out of here for, for there. And so, you know, the rapture is that moment that, that these folks look for. And then the second coming of Jesus is their backup plan so that for those seven years, if you do get left behind, the hope is that um, the loved ones left behind will see the truth, that they will come to Jesus, they'll be saved. And that's what you see in Left Behind novels yeah. and Kirk Cameron movie is that these people were maybe backslidden Christians and never really paid attention. And now this big dramatic moment happened that they can't deny. And so they come to Jesus. And so it's it's a time of chaos, but it's also a time for people to get that one last chance so they can go to heaven. Now, from your understanding and your research, what will happen to the Jewish people when the rapture takes place? That's a wonderful question. Um, and it's one that I think a lot of end times theology folks don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, because the theology is that only, you know, professing Christians, faithful Christians, will be raptured. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's the case, then the Jewish people are definitely getting left behind writ large, just like any other sort of tradition. The problem is they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too a little bit. Um, it's It gets into this really murky waters theologically and then ends up, especially for a lot of evangelicalism, in what's called supersessionism, yeah. where Christianity doesn't just come alongside Judaism, but just replaces it um, and takes over. And that has been a hugely damaging theology long since the, before the rapture. I mean, this mm -hmm. is what leads to um, all sorts of anti-Semitic uh, violence for, for centuries in the name of Jesus and the cross and mm -hmm. all sorts of things. Um, but with, with, with this sort of thing in particular, it, it's an interesting question because a lot of the prophecies that they invent or to be terrible, do they, they draw from, come from the Old Testament. Um, and the, Old Test or the, you know the Jewish people don't read them that way, um, which is always an interesting thing when you take other people's texts and say, "Oh, actually, it means this," and they're saying, "I don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> but 
but they would absolutely be left behind. Mm-hmm. And the irony is, though, that they need them as the means to an end to get these events, that prophetic events, to happen. And so what happens is, even though they would definitely, most of them would tell you, no, you know, God's going to keep his promise to the people of Israel. The people of Israel will be in heaven or heaven on earth or, or whatever um, because, you know, the covenant with Abraham and things like that. Really, the Jewish people in this this story are are just a prop. Yeah, they're pawns. It, it, they're means to an end. They, they, these folks with the end the times theology are all about supporting Israel, the, na- the modern nation state of Israel, and letting them do whatever they need to do. The up until rapture, because they want to get to that moment. Mm-hmm. And so if Israel went tomorrow and blew up the Dome of the Rock, you obviously would have massive violence and it would spark a war in, in the Middle East. In the United States, you would have Christians celebrating. Yeah, but yeah so in, in the end times scheme, um, the Jewish people are just a means to an end. They, they mean um, in times evangelicals, want Israel to have their nation state. They want them to have the control um, because they want the rapture to happen and they think these things need to happen. And so they'll turn a blind eye to violence, to um, what is effectively an apartheid state, to oppression, to to whatever Israel, the modern nation state, wants to get away with because it's all a means to an end and that, that end is me going to heaven. And so, you know, any violence that Israel wants to perpetrate um, or that they even just happen to, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Anything that happens there that can be spun into um, a, a prophetic fulfillment is taken. So, for example, um, Donald Trump in 2000, was it 17, 2018, moves the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And what he's doing there is pandering to his evangelical base who have convinced, again, that, that anything that goes along um, with America and Israel is some sort of pro- prophetic significance. But what happened um, when he did that were massive protests that led to the death of at least 60 people. And you don't hear about that at all in evangelical uh, circles or especially in in these circles because they don't matter. They don't matter because they're Palestinian. um, And and in the evangelical mind, Palestinians are all Muslims and they're the bad guys. Um, But even if they were and known to be Christians or, you know, Jews, whoever died, don't matter because it's part of this necessary step that gets us to... Yeah, to the rapture. So again, like if they could blow up the Dome of the Rock and evangelicals over here would celebrate because they would see this as this massive prophetic moment um, that is about to usher in the return of Jesus or at least at least the rapture. And so it it becomes a justification for horrifying violence yeah. that is by definition anti-Christ um, in the truest sense of the word. Yeah, and the way I've heard it once uh, elaborated is that the evangelical Christians would not want the Palestinian state. Oh, yeah. Even, even if the Israeli Jews decide that they will, will allow the Palestinians to have their state, the evangelical Christians would not. Yeah, and, and that's where things, again, like it gets murky because, I mean, you you definitely have a segment, um, a significant segment of evangelicals who um, would, would fully embrace the two-state solution. Yeah. That want to end violence. That you know, maybe they believe in the rapture, maybe they don't, but like they have heart for people. They don't want to see violence. And there is a significant amount of those uh, in evangelical circles. The problem is the much louder group and part that wields political power um, is the group that wants to see one nation of Israel take over 
um, the entire land, kick everybody out that isn't part of God's chosen people um, so that X, Y, and Z can happen so that the rapture can happen. And those are the Pat Hagees, the Joel Osteens, and, yeah. and the longest ones. Yes. So, so most. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you'll see um, John Hagee is, is a big one. Pat Robertson was, mm-hmm. you know, up until recent times. Um, one of my favorite guys, he passed away actually on my birthday a couple of years ago, um, was a guy named Jack Van Impey. Yeah, yeah, in your book. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he and Rex Sella uh, had a TV program that appeared on like TBN and some other places for a while. And he would do, you know, what we were talking about before, where he would go through the day's news and explain how all of these stories. In rapture terms and prophetic terms. Exactly. And he would show, like, oh, this is proof of this verse, of this verse. And if you're in that world, it's deeply convincing, mm-hmm. you know, and deeply appealing because if he's right, then this really incredible, amazing moment's going to happen. And yeah, it's kind of crappy in the moment for these people. And some people might get hurt and lose their land or, or maybe even die. But ultimately, Jesus is going to make it's everything better. Image, it doesn't matter. Yes. And so it's this, you know, ethical rationale of the ends justify the means. So, Zach, uh, considering we just discussed evangelical support for Israel. I want to share with you a Pew data research poll that um, will inform this conversation. So uh, Pew in 2013 asked Americans overall, of all religions, all races, everything, asked them in 2013, was Israel given to the Jewish people by God? Question mark. Jewish Americans voted 40% yes. Evangelical Americans voted 82% yes. It's wild, right? Because you would think that the people most intimately connected to the issue um, would be the overwhelming number, and yet it's the complete you know, opposite. I think you have a couple of things you know, going on. One is, is just the question itself. You know, we talked about the evangelical bubble and, and the world you know, that you're in, and you know, especially if you've not gotten out of the states, for example, um, gotten out and seen the world. If your world ends at your driveway or your, you know, your church, and that's all you know, then it's all much easier to be totally disconnected from the implications or the practical effects of your theology. And so, when I, I think one of the underlying things that's going on in that dynamic is evangelicals hear that question is a Bible trivia question. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's saying, oh, in the Bible, you know, did God give Israel um, it's this area? It's as simple as that. And so they hear themselves answer, well, yeah, obviously, because you go read Genesis, you know, there's the Abrahamic covenant. Mm-hmm. The irony is that if you go read Genesis, this is the book, you know, this is the Hebrew Bible, you know, and these are the Jewish people. And they're saying, yeah, not so much at 40%. And that's because they, for them, this is a question of lived experience. And they understand the practical effects of this theology in this particular area of the world um, and what has changed and what's different and what's going on. And so it's, it's interesting to look at those underlying dynamics, but ultimately I think what that speaks to is the almost arrogance of the ignorance of what is happening. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about before that it's this sort of ends justify the means theology of, yeah. of evangelical relationship with Israel so that anything goes in Israel as long as it moves the prophetic map forward and gets us closer to Jesus coming back. And so uh, Jewish folks who have lived this dynamic and the tensions in Palestine, um, you know, and the war of uh, whatever, um, whether it's World War II or um, the Six-Day War or whatever, I mean, they in the ongoing conflicts, you know, that they're still going on in the Middle East, 
and understand that this is a, a complicated situation where um, you know you've got people who've lived there for thousands of years mm-hmm. that are Jewish and not Jewish. You know that are um, that are Muslim that are um, maybe people of no faith. And then what a lot of Christians forget altogether. There's a lot of Christians in Palestine. You know that it's not this firm wall that's been built um, quite literally between you know the people of God and then God's enemies. Um, not that the Muslims are God's enemies either. You know, these are all people coming from the same area using the same book. But for evangelicals who are in this bubble and have this map and this timetable, um, you know, of course the God is giving this because I see God's already given it back to them, you know, in 1947. Um, you know, this is this is a prophetic fulfillment. And so that question, you know, seems so simple when all of this is just an idea or story in a book or a movie that you saw. Mm. You know, when you're disconnected from the on the ground events, it's easy to say in overwhelming numbers that of course that land belongs to Israel because I read it in a book that was written, you know, several thousand years ago. And there's no thought into the catastrophic damage that happens from that sort of callous response. Yeah, so I don't know if you've heard about Sharina Buckley. No. The Palestinian Christian journalist mm. who was uh, murdered. Oh yes, I didn't recognize the name, but yes, I know exactly. What you're so about. a lot of people heard about her as the journalist, yeah. the female journalist that was shot by Israeli troops yeah. in the in the West Bank. Um, not many people know that she was Palestinian Christian, mm. and I just wonder if you, as an evangelical Christian have not ventured out intellectually to try and see what is going on around in the world. And you have so blindly supported one side of the, of the conflict. Stories like Shireen's will never reach your tablet, will never reach your newspaper, will never reach you in any form. Yeah. So how, does, how do these good people that I believe are good inherently, not inherently, but innately good, sure. and they're trying to um, just live life by avoiding sin, yeah. How do they get faced with the reality of someone like Sharina Bakhtik, a Palestinian Christian, the birthplace of our, our religion, all of us here? Um, how do they justify that? That's a great question. I, I think there's several answers. One, they don't. Um, they tune it out, either intentionally or just accidentally. Um, they have be- you know, folks in, in that world have become so accustomed to Israel's the good guys, anybody who attacks them is the bad guys, any criticism of Israel, the state is anti-Semitic, um, you know, and so there's no conversation to be had, you know, in the first place. There's folks that hear that and are blindsided and befuddled at the idea that they're Palestinian Christians. Aren't all Palestinians Muslims? You know, maybe they got lost or something, you know? I mean, it's this, glazed overlook, you know, when you have that conversation about Christians in Palestine. And then, you know, there's what we talked about before, the just perverseness of the theology itself that can allow someone to ignore that or justify it because it moves the prophetic calendar forward. And so, you know, I think it's what we've seen, it's reflective of a lot of what we see in the United States and that life has become increasingly divided between good guys and bad guys. And so like our presidential races are a battle between good and evil, you know, and everything is in these extremist contexts 
Well, and then when you put it in a religious context as well, it just becomes all the more magnified. And so that um, evil that is objectively evil um, in any other context becomes collateral damage yeah. in the war for the kingdom of God. Yeah. And so it's there's no one specific answer, I think, to that question, because there are folks that are completely ignorant that are completely oblivious, let's say, that that happened. There are folks that would be befuddled at the idea that that, that could happen. Um, and then there are folks that, if you're being blunt, don't really care because there's more important things to do. Yeah. How you combat that, I think you can do it on two levels. I mean, there's one, taking a pilgrimage to Israel is a huge thing, you know, in, you know, any faith is going to have a huge emphasis on pilgrimage, you know, whether that's Mecca or Jerusalem or, or some other destination. You know, but evangelical trips to Israel are huge. You know, they go see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you know, go see the Valley of Armageddon, you know, go see, you know, where Jesus was baptized, so on and so on. I think those can be a lot more effective if we fundamentally change what's going on in that experience. And so that it stops being segmented off and stops being, what's the word that I'm looking for? Disney-fied, I think, in a sense. That like this is all just happy, you know, fun games. We all go see these pretty spots that have been made up for tourists. I think that if you care about the land, if you care about people, if you are a follower of Jesus who really believes that loving your neighbor and praying for your enemies and embracing the Samaritans that live in areas that you think you you know don't want to go to. You would never even think about supporting a settlement. Exactly. You need to go and see that with your eyes. You need to see the settlements. You need to see the houses being bulldozed over. You need to see the children being you know, killed by soldiers. You need to see you know, the constant violence and say, is this the way of Jesus? Is this the way of God? And if not, what do we need to do to change? And then the other two is, it's on the local pastors. I mean, all faiths, whether it's Christianity, Islam, Judaism, whatever, begin on, and I think a lot of times in, you know, on the local level. And so I think a lot of it is incumbent on pastors and Sunday school teachers to step back and, and really think about how they talk um, about the situation over in Israel. Because even if you believe in all of the end times prophecy stuff, that doesn't mean that it's okay for you to look the other way at, again, what is essentially an apartheid situation of people being locked behind walls and, and gates. Like, you know, how do you celebrate the birth of Jesus knowing that Bethlehem is behind a barbed wire fence, so to speak. Um, And so, you know, I think going and seeing those things is is a really transformative experience. Most of us can't do that. So I think it really begins on the local level with pastors, you know, teachers um, need to step back and, and really look at what's happening on the ground and how their theology, how their sermons, how their beliefs, and how their money, because a lot of money gets poured into these yeah. these groups um, that support Israel, go to mission trips, that do whatever, or what they're doing at the ballot box, how that affects you know what happens there. Um, so yeah, I, I think if you can go and see for yourself, great. Um, but really, at the local level, we need to stop and rethink how we talk about this dynamic. Yeah, completely agree. Joe, uh, Joe Osteen and um, Pat Hagee could do with one less jet. 
<laughs> I don't know if if, if uh, Joel doesn't have his Ferraris and Lamborghinis, it's, it's a lot harder. How can you preach the Bible? The good the good book. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Let's uh, let's see here. I have some quotes I want to go through. Um, here we go. Here lies the ultimate problem with end times theology. It values prophecy more than people. Fulfilling biblical prophecy is more important than the lives of Palestinians, more important than those crushed by a foreign policy that's supposedly fulfilling prophecies. So that exactly hits on it hits, a, hits a nail on the head with the, um, with the consequences that are being ignored. So you put it in so eloquently, but um, how, how would you explain that to the next evangelical friend of yours that tells you that Israel deserves all the land that, of, of historic Palestine and that the Palestinians need to go to Syria? <laughs> I would point them back to Jesus. I think, for, at least for me, I mean, everyone's theology is different. We all, as, as cliche as it is to pick on people for picking and choosing verses and things, we all do that. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have different emphases. And for me, the foundation of, of my understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is the thing that Jesus said was the foundation. When people came up to him and said, what is the greatest commandment? You know, I mean, it's it's not all that different from, you know, what's the most important prophecy? You know, what 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 needs to happen? You know, um, because what I mean, that's really what the um, teachers of law and religious leaders are asking. You know, like, what what do we need to do to live out the kingdom of God? You know, on earth, and Jesus looks at them and he says, you know, there's two commands: is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says. All the law and the prophets hang on these two verses. So what he's seeing is that everything that you read at that moment in time in the, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, but for us, or for me as a Christian, everything that we read in the Old and New Testament has to be judged by, led by, interpreted by um, the call to love one another. And so... Not fear. Not fear. And so there's, you know... One of the great early church fathers, a guy named St. Augustine, picks up on this for his rule for interpreting scripture. And he says, you know, no, this is me paraphrasing um, ineloquently. He essentially says, you know, no matter how great your interpretation is, no matter how much work you've done, how much exegesis or textual work or, you know, words you've uncovered and understood, mm -hmm. if your interpretation doesn't leave you to love your neighbor and to love God, then you're wrong. Period. It doesn't matter how many proof texts you have or how clear the passage is. And I think that's something that the church, particularly in the United States, needs to reckon with on a lot of issues. Um, this one in particular, that you know, even if you, you're convinced, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there are these prophetic events that need to happen, that X, Y, and Z um, must happen for Jesus to return, even if you know, you've got all the verses to prove that, if in pursuing those goals, if in looking out for the signs, you are doing things that are causing violence to your neighbor um, that are not loving, then you've lost the plot of the gospel. You've left the path of, of Jesus. And so ultimately, regardless of what you think of in times theology um, or you know, in the Christian faith, whether you believe that the rapture is gonna happen you know, or not, 
if that sets you on a path that justifies or ignores or worse empowers mm -hmm. um, violence towards neighbors in the name of Jesus, in the name of prophecy, in the name of whatever, then, then your search for the Antichrist is over because you can go look in the mirror and, and you'll see him. Wow. Yeah. That's a great way to end. Thanks. And to summarize, um, yeah, base your religion on love rather than fear.